Open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 3. Today's message is entitled, No Bowing. I think I'm going to take the third chapter and divide it into three lessons, but who knows, it may take me longer than that, but that's my plan right now, and those three lessons are going to be entitled, No Bowing, No Budging, and No Burning. So what are we going to be talking about? That very well-known account of Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael not bowing before Nebuchadnezzar's golden image and therefore being thrown into the fiery furnace where they emerge after visiting with the Son of God himself. They emerge without even the smell of smoke on them. I'm very excited about this, this true story in the scripture. So if you're opened up to Daniel 3, we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 12. Let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time together. Father, thank you for the beauty of this day. Thank you that we do know spring is right around the corner, and we're excited about that. As we also think about the time of year when you resurrected from the dead. Mm, greatest thing that's ever happened. Father, now as we open up your word, thank you for the privilege we have to assemble together freely yet in this country to do this, that we can open up your word to get to know you better. We can fellowship with sisters in Christ. We don't need to fear that we will be persecuted for doing so. Lord, um, as we look at these three men, wonderful examples to us in so many ways, but mostly in the fact that they would not compromise. They stood strong on the principles of your word. May we too be willing, as they were, to present our bodies literally as living sacrifices unto you, that they may be that it might be holy and acceptable unto you for us to do so, because it is, as you say, our reasonable service. It's not even above and beyond what you would expect. You are a living sacrifice for us, so it's just reasonable that we would be living sacrifices for you. And I pray that we would do that, and we would not be conformed to this world, which is so at work, trying to conform us into its image, but would we, that we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds through your word. And that's what this is all about, transforming us into your image, the image of the Lord Jesus Christ, who we love and in whose name we pray that this morning's lesson would glorify him. Amen. Daniel chapter 3 centers on a huge golden image and the events that are directly centered around it. <clears throat> and it really is... It really is the long-term reaction of King Nebuchadnezzar to the interpretation of his dream in chapter 2. We know what his short-term reaction to that dream, you know, after Daniel gave him the dream and then interpreted it, we know what his short-term reaction was. He spontaneously fell down on his face in the prostrate, prostrated position to worship basically Daniel, um, and that was in, in chapter 2, verses 46 to 49, which is kind of ironic when you think of that reaction in light of what takes place in the next chapter, because his short-term reaction was to fall down, prostrate, before Daniel, and what does he make everybody do in chapter 3? Fall down, prostrate, before an image that he builds, maybe even of himself. I thought about calling this chapter Nebuchadnezzar's self-image. 
In his interpretation of that dream, Daniel, remember, told the king that the gold head of the image was what? Him. That was him. It represented him and, of course, his kingdom. Now, what we learn from chapter 3 is it is obvious that Nebuchadnezzar had not forgotten that particular statement. In fact, it almost seems like it's the only part of the dream that he really had ears willing to hear. He had selective hearing. He seems to have forgotten about the rest of the dream, but boy, did he focus on that part where the head of gold was him. Um, so the reason I say now that chapter 3 is Nebuchadnezzar's long-term reaction to the dream of chapter 2 is because the consensus of opinion among Bible scholars is that his construction of the golden image that we read about in the very first verse of chapter 3 actually took place approximately 20 years after his dream. So if it, in the little white space between chapter 2, verse 49, and chapter 3, verse 1, you want to write there approximately 20 years later, that would be accurate. They say anywhere from 18 to 23 years later. Historians have figured this all out. Okay, so that's a big time difference. So this is his long-term reaction to his dream. Now, the third chapter of Daniel is unique in the book of Daniel because it is the only chapter in the whole book of the 12 chapters where Daniel himself is not involved. Of course, he's the author. He wrote about this incident, but he is not present he is not mentioned at all, and that leads Bible commentators to assume that he was therefore not present at the dedication ceremony of this image, when, of course, the uh, circumstances concerning his friends in the fiery furnace took place. Most of the common guesses or speculations about where he was are these. Number one, people will say, Bible students will say, that he must have been on a business journey for the king somewhere else, out of the province of Babylon. He must have been out of the area. Number two, they say, well, perhaps he was ill. Maybe he was sick. And the third thing they say is that maybe he was on some type of a, of a VIP platform with the king himself and the other dignitaries, you know, because he was elevated to uh, the position of prime minister of the kingdom, and, you know, he had all these important positions. So maybe he was up there on the platform with the king at the dedication ceremony, and therefore he was not expected to bow before the image when the music began. I only have one question about that, however. If Daniel was there, then don't you think we would have heard some kind of intervention or protest from him when they arrested his three friends and threw them into the fiery furnace? Yeah, I would think so. So I don't really go with that one. I think he must have just been out of town. Maybe, and this is one of your homework questions, maybe King Nebuchadnezzar purposely sent him out of town because he really had great respect for Daniel. And knowing he would not bow, maybe he purposely just sent him away so he wouldn't be forced to not bow. I don't know. But as with everything, there is a providential reason for the absence of Daniel from chapter 3. There is a reason for it. And although I can't stand here and dogmatically tell you what that reason is, I do know that there is a reason. Because everything is under God's providence, right? 
Uh, perhaps the reason Daniel is not in this chapter is so that you and I can learn that Daniel's companions were not simply tagalongs who just sort of followed him in everything he, he um, was dedicated and committed about. They too had sterling character. They too were men of genuine faith and amazing courage for the glory of the Most High God. So maybe Daniel just had to get out of the way so we could also see these three men. Now, this is the last time that we see them in the whole book. They're never mentioned again, but the Spirit of God made sure that they went out in a blaze of glory. <laughs> right? <laughs> and they sure did. So we have four examples now to look up to in this book. Daniel and Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. Now, I've taken the 12 verses that we're going to look at today in our message, No Bowing, and I have subdivided them into five sections. We're going to be looking at the Colossus Constructed, the Crowded Consecration, the King's Command, the Crowd's Compliance, and the Chaldean's Conspiracy. And that took me half a day to do that. <laughs> Not really. All right, I'm getting pretty good at doing that. Let's look at the Colossus constructed, just verse 1, okay? Look just with me at verse 1 where it says, Nebuchadnezzar, the king, made an image of gold whose height was three score cubits and the breadth thereof six cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Well, in the years that had passed since the time of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, he had, and historians tell us this, he had enjoyed a number of military victories, which included a successful 13-year siege on Tyre, you know, the city of Tyre in Phoenicia. It also included his invasion and conquest of Egypt, so his empire was expanded all the way from Egypt to Babylon. Now, in his Egyptian campaign, Nebuchadnezzar would have seen with his own two eyes the huge pyramids there and the sphinxes. He would have seen the tremendous statue of Ramses the Great and the, the great size of those tributes you know, because they were tributes to the pharaohs, and Ramses was a pharaoh, etc. But those grand, the grand size of those tributes to rulers of the past, plus the memory of the colossal image of his dream, I think those things combined likely planted seeds in his mind to leave a gigantic monument behind so that people would remember his own greatness. The guy had an ego problem. All the rulers had ego problems, right? So he wanted to leave behind this um, great statue for people to remember him. Furthermore, by this time, some 20 years later, all three exiles of the Jews from Jerusalem over to Babylon had taken place. The first one was when they carried over Daniel and his friends, the young royal boys of royal seed. That was in 605 B.C., but there was another one, 597, and then the, and that's, Ezekiel was in that one. And then the third one, they brought everybody, except a few farmers left there, but all the Jews were now in Babylon. The third one took place in 586. Now, if you're Nebuchadnezzar, you're thinking, <clears throat> okay, in having overthrown Judah 
and having destroyed the, their holy city of Jerusalem and even their temple, which he totally looted and then destroyed, that was Solomon's temple, um, and hauling all the Jewish people to your city as your captives, your slaves, it's easy to see why this pagan polytheistic king lost interest in a god who apparently couldn't protect either his own people or his, his temple, his house. He couldn't protect his own people, his own city, or his own house of worship. So what kind of God is that, you know, Daniel's God? The statue now may have been made in the image of Nebuchadnezzar himself. That's why I said the title could be Nebuchadnezzar's self-image. I don't know. Maybe it was in his image, whatever he looked like. Or it may have been a representation of one of his Babylonian gods. And the one I would probably go with would be Marduk, because that was the god who Nebuchadnezzar credited for giving him power to conquer. But either way, the image he built was actually a demonstration of his rebellion toward the God of the Jews, the Hebrew God, Daniel's God, and the dream image that Daniel's God had given him. It was as though after 20 years of military victories, Nebuchadnezzar was declaring that he did not care what Daniel's God had revealed to him about the future. After all, if the Hebrew God knew the future so well, then why hadn't he done something to prevent his own people from being carried away as captives? So you get the thought process that might have been, probably was going on in his brain. So Nebuchadnezzar decided that his great Babylonian empire was not going to fall to some other empire symbolized by the silver breast and arms especially when Daniel had said that it was an inferior empire to his. Remember that back in chapter 2, verse 39? In fact, he decided, Nebuchadnezzar decided, that there would be no kingdoms at all, of sil whether they were silver or brass or iron or iron mixed with baked clay. No kingdoms to replace his own, ever. You see, in giving his order to cover his image from top to bottom, you know, head to toes, to cover it with gold, the proud king, in effect, was doing what? He was shaking his fist in the face of, face of Daniel's God. This was done in rebellion to what God had revealed to him in that dream. Now, although very arrogant and, and puffed up with pride, yet we also know that Nebuchadnezzar was an intelligent man. He was. So his construction of this image and his mandated worship of it was also his way not only to glorify himself, but to unite his vast empire and to test the loyalty of his ethnically diverse governmental officials. You know, he's conquered now from Egypt to Babylon. There's a lot of ethnicities there. There's a lot of people that speak different languages. You know, he, he didn't want the iron mixed with clay kind of thing going on where they wouldn't adhere. So he wants to bring everybody together. They worship different gods, etc. So a state religion could serve as a unifying thread for his empire. And more importantly, 
you know, for loyalty to him as king. So that was a smart thing. Now, the golden image was constructed, where does it tell us? On the plain of Dura, in the province of Babylon. That was very likely a location that was about five or six miles southeast of the city of Babylon. And the reason that they think it was in that particular location is because back a few years, a French archaeologist by the name of Jules Opert discovered a large brick, uh, a square brick construction. And when I say large, it was large, 46 feet by 46 feet. That's a big brick, and it was 20 feet high. Big brick, brick construction in that particular location. And he claims, and most people agree with him, that this was probably the pedestal base for Nebuchadnezzar's image, his statue. Now, the flat plain of Dura, you know, Babylon is in Iraq, and it's desert, and it's flat, a lot of sand, you know, no mountains around there. And so that plain, being big and open and flat, would easily host the massive crowd that assembled for this dedication ceremony. Also, commentators estimate that that image, it's, we're going to talk about how tall it was, but that Standing there in that flat plain, it would be visible for nearly 13 miles in every direction. And then because it's covered with gold, you know, the hot sun, the Babylonian sun shining on it, you could probably even see it from further than 13 miles distance in every direction. So it's a good location for it. Now, in our terms of measurement, and we use the decimal system, you know, a mathematical system that's based on the number 10. The, the height and width of this statue was 90 feet by 9 feet. That's using our system of measurement, the decimal system. 90 feet tall is a telephone pole and a half, <laughs> if you can picture that. A telephone pole is 60 feet tall, so it would be a telephone pole and a half. But it's only 9 feet wide. But the Babylonians, and we've talked about this before, they didn't use a decimal system. They used a sexagesimal system, which is based on the number six. Okay? So Daniel, living in Babylon, he gave Babylonian measurements for this image. And it was, we we're told, three score and six cubits wide. Three score. A score is 20. So what's three score? 60. Very good. <laughs> and you didn't even teach math. Um, it was 60 cubits tall by 6 cubits wide. Now the number 6, and you all know this because we've talked about it so many times, but the number 6 in the Bible is man's number. It even says that in Revelation 13, 18. 6 is man's number. He was created on what day? The 6th day. He is to work 6 days and then rest on the 7th. God gave man a 24-hour day, which is a multiple of six. Tw uh, 24 is four times six. Now, seven is the biblical number for perfection or completion, which is a condition, a state that man is ever striving to attain in his own strength and by way of his own wisdom, but he can never attain perfection apart from God, right? 
So no matter how many sixes follow an original six, I don't care if you go six, 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 on for infinity, no matter how many sixes, man always, always falls short of the glory and the perfection of God when he's trying to do it on his own. It is very fitting that the people of the city where man's first corporate attempt to reach God, you know, perfection by way of his own efforts, began, um, where that first began, that they use a used a mathematical system based on the number six. Isn't that very appropriate? You know, Babel, that's where man first corporately tried to reach seven on his own. <laughs> and under the leadership of a man named Nimrod, who just happened to be the sixth son of his father Cush, who was the grandson of Noah. Nimrod's name, remember what it meant? Let us rebel. Throughout the Bible, you'll see sixes. You know the great, the biggest man in the Bible? Who is the biggest, like the best the best uh, physique man could ever attain. Goliath. Well, yeah, Samson, no, but Goliath was bigger than Samson. Um, Goliath, his measurements in the scripture are that was, he was six cubits tall and six inches. Six cubits and six inches. Isn't that interesting? Like, that's the best man can, can attain to, you know, showing the mightiest man. And then, of course, the Antichrist, we know, is like supposed to be the um, most intelligent man, I guess, because he's possessed by Satan himself, who's very intelligent, and um, the final world dictator, and what's his number? 666, but he can never get to seven either. Satan can never get to seven because he's a created being. It's also very interesting. Well, did you know that there is a close parallel between Daniel chapter 3 and Revelation chapter 13? There is. In both chapters, there are ruling dictate, world dictators. You have Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 3, the first super dictator king of the times of the Gentiles. And in Revelation 13, you've got the Antichrist, who is the final super dictator king of that same period of time, the times of the Gentiles. In both chapters, there is, as we just talked about, an affiliation with the number six. In Daniel 3, there is the 66 by 6 cubits image, and there is an orchestra that's going to play whenever, before everybody bows down. I call it the Chaldean Philharmonic. <laughs> and how many instruments does it talk about that this orchestra had? How many would you guess? Six, six instruments. Well, over in Revelation 13, there is, of course, the affiliation of the Antichrist's name and his dreadful mark, the mark of the beast, being 666. In both chapters, there is the anti-God attempt to unify the various people groups of those two respective kingdoms, the Babylonian kingdom and then the revived Roman Empire that's going to consist of all kinds of different ethnicities and people groups and religions. So there's the anti-God attempt to unify the people with a state religion by way of a human-like image to be worshipped that is accompanied with a death threat. <laughs> if you don't bow down and worship the beast or Nebuchadnezzar's golden image, what? Death. 
Yet neither dictator, neither one, Nebuchadnezzar nor the Antichrist, is any match for the faithful servants of God who refuse to bow to anyone but him. They may be thrown in the fires of tribulation, but they are very much alive and even in the presence of God himself. Now we know that the three Hebrews were in the presence of the Son of God, right? They're in the fires of tribulation and in the end times, um, I think that they may picture prophetically the 144,000 Jews who are sealed by God they're his witnesses. They're in the fires of the tribulation, and the Antichrist wants to destroy them, but they're sealed by God. So they're walking around in the fire, and they're totally protected. Anyway, it's all so very interesting, so interesting, so much correlation. Well, a lot of speculation has been made about the form of the image that Nebuchadnezzar built. Since its dimensions, I don't know if you thought about this, but the dimensions of this statue are way out of proportion for a human body. <laughs> yes, the human body has a height to width ratio of five or six to one, which means that we're, on an average, there are many exceptions, <laughs> but on an average, we're five or six times as tall as we are wide. <laughs> <laughs> now that just makes you laugh, right? Um, <laughs> but that, the, the statue that Nebuchadnezzar had built has a ratio of 10 to 1, 10 times taller than it is wide. So that would make for a grotesquely tall, completely distorted human figure, right? Subsequently, some have suggested that it was not the image of a human figure at all but maybe it was some kind of um, weird animal or something. I don't know, giraffe. <laughs> Subsequently, um, others have said that it was a, a giant obelisk. Now, do you know what I mean when I say obelisk? You know the Washington Monument? Can you picture it? Tall and skinny, it goes to a point at the top. There's obelisks all over this world. They originated, it's a satanic kind of a thing, and it's also a gross kind of a thing symbolizing a male organ, but they're all over this, this world, but they originated in Egypt. It's occultic. So some say it could, be, it could have been a giant obelisk or a tall, skinny totem pole type of structure, perhaps having feet at the bottom and then a head way up at the top. However, now I don't know, I can't be dogmatic about it, but um, if Nebuchadnezzar had been thinking about his dream image of chapter 2, which was of a man, right? We know that because it had a head and body parts, you know, all the way down to the toes. Um, and it, all indications are that he was thinking about that image. I think that it's very likely that this statue was made in the form of a human being, a man probably um, either him, to look like him, or, or his god, Marduk. <laughs> Actually, the, I think the best explanation for this strange ratio of the image 10 to 1 is connected to that French archaeologist's discovery of that 20-foot-tall brick platform, which could have been the base of a pedestal upon which a human-shaped statue 
uh, of proper proportions was then situated. So let's say it was 20 feet tall and you put the statue on top of that, um, but that could have just, and that still would be too long and skinny, but that could have been the base for a ziggurat. You know, they had a lot of those ziggurats, like a pyramid with steps. Um, and so that could have just been the bottom lane or could have gone higher and then they put the statue up on top of it. And then also many of the images that they made had big hats. If you see them, if you look in um, books and see statues, they had big hats. So that could be another foot. So by the time you had it on the pedestal with a hat, if it did, you know, it would be the proper proportion for a human. This is all just guesswork, but I'm just trying to say this is possibly what, what it was. Now, since Be uh, Nebuchadnezzar had plenty of gold, Herodotus said that um, about 22 tons of gold were discovered in Babylon, and we know that he plundered the gold from every place he conquered, including the temple in Jerusalem. He had plenty of gold, so he could have made the entire image of solid gold. Har Most people think he did not do that, because that would have been impractical. It would have been way too heavy, um, and it would be keeping with the, the common practice of that time to build an image, a statue of wood, and then overlay it with gold. So it still would give the same effect, you know, it'd be covered from head to toe with gold. Well, once the construction of this huge image was completed, Nebuchadnezzar summoned all of the government officials of his entire kingdom to attend a kind of a dedication ceremony, a Golden Globe Award ceremony of some type. <laughs> All right, so let's look at the crowded consecration, verses 2 and 3. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent to gather together the princes, the governors, and the captains, the judges, the treasurers, the counselors, the sheriffs, and all the rulers of the provinces. Made me wonder who was left to rule to come to the dedication of the image which Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. All right, so everybody who was anybody was invited. And then look at verse 3. Then the princes, the governors, and the captains, the judges, the treasurers, the counselors, the sheriffs, and all the rulers of the provinces were gathered together unto the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. So everyone who was invited came. You get it? All, the, all those leaders were invited, and all those leaders came. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had set up. The message the king sent forth in order to gather together the eight different groups of Babylonian officials that are listed, you know, twice in verse 2 and then again in verse 3, was really more of an order than it was an invitation. It was a command. You are to come. <laughs> Officials of every province of the Babylonian Empire, from Babylon to, to, to Egypt, were to be in attendance. Now, you know, it would have taken them a while to get to Babylon, right? Or right outside of Babylon. It would have taken a while for them to get there. And each official, you know, like a, a prince or a captain or whatever they're called, a judge, treasurer, they're not going to make that trip by themselves, are they? too dangerous. So you know that they would come with their own caravan, their entourage. Maybe they would even bring their family members. I mean, this was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, a trip to the famous golden city of Babylon where they could see 
Um, it'd be like a trip to Disney World, you know? Take your whole family because you could see the famous hanging gardens. It was one of the wonders of the ancient world. So, you know, I think that they came, each one of these guys, and there's a lot of them in the whole empire, came with lots of people. And then there would have also been the king's entire staff, all of his dignitaries and his personal retinue of servants and attendees and armed bodyguards and military troops would be there. And then you have the musicians and singers and probably many servants, if food was served, and I imagine it was, to take care of all the matters that needed to host what turned out to be a tremendous crowd of people, a massive crowd. And when this crowd of prominent people all arrived for the established date of the dedication out on the sunny, hot desert of Dura, they likely, when they got there, you know, probably ran some of them to be the first ones there because I'm sure they jockeyed for prominent places, positions. <laughs> it, the closer to the head table, the more, you know, likely, maybe if, if the king was going to give out awards at this Golden Globe ceremony, you know, they didn't know why they're being summoned, but maybe if they were up front, they'd get one of those awards, or it was just more like the Pharisees. They always like to have the front seats, or maybe they wanted to be the ones that were right under the base of the image. So I can imagine there's a lot of jockeying for the most important position. And then I got to thinking that there were probably no other Jews in attendance other than the three who Nebuchadnezzar had elevated to positions of prominence some 20 years earlier merely be, because of Daniel, you know, because Daniel requested that they be given those positions. Um, but the common Jewish people who were captives of Babylon didn't hold positions of prominence in that Gentile kingdom. And so this would explain, and this kind of was a revelation to me, because you know what? I've always thought, why of all those Jewish people out there did only three not bow? And then I got, you know, when I'm studying this, I'm thinking, ah, that makes sense. Because if there was one thing that the Jewish people learned in Babylon, it was not to bow to idols. They, they completely got rid of their idol worship. So there would have been more bow, not bowing with these three. But they're, they're the only three that were given prominent positions. They came under the category there, I guess, of, of uh, princes or governors. So that was a new one for me. Now the crowd assembled before this golden image saw they would see all the royalty, they'd see all the colorful costumes of everybody, you know, and all the languages, different languages going on, and it was uh, exciting. They would see um, the orchestra, in, you know, in the orchestra pit over there, and they'd see the choir and all the fanfare, and probably tables and tables laden with all the king's rich food and huge decanters of wine, and it was just a celebration, you know, it was exciting to be there. They felt like they were something, you know, they were VIPs to be there. Little did they realize what was coming as a man called a herald got their attention, stood up probably on a platform, and got their attention to make an announcement from the king. So let's look at the king's command, verses 4 to 6. Then an herald cried aloud, To you it is commanded, O people, nations, and languages, that at what time you hear the sound of the cornet, the 
uh, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, dulcimer, and all kinds of music, ye fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar, the king, hath set up. And whoso falleth not down and worshipeth shall the same hour be cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. Oh dear. Suddenly all the festivities didn't sound so festive. <laughs> a herald um, was, would be a man with a booming voice because they didn't have any public um, address system, no microphone, so he'd have to have a loud voice. He began the day's ceremony by going straight to the point. I mean, he didn't pull any punches, did he? He just got up there and he didn't even welcome them. You know, normally you think, Ladies and gentlemen, I welcome you here on behalf of King Nebuchadnezzar, and I would like to recognize so-and-so, and so, you know, they'd name certain dignitaries that were there so they could feel so proud of themselves. He didn't do that, did he? He didn't even thank them for accepting the invitation to the golden image dedication celebration. Rather, he stood up, and what's the first thing out of his mouth? To you it is commanded. Uh-oh. And then he proceeded to tell all the people and the nations and the languages. They must have had um, language interpreters there or something. I don't know. But he told them exactly what they were to do. He said, at the moment the music began, they were to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar, the king, had set up. Now, I thought about the fact that this chapter, chapter 3 of Daniel, could really be called the set up and fall down chapter it really could go through it and underline every time it says set up, set up, set up, set up. I did that nine times. It says set up, set up, set up. Six times, there you go, there's another six. It says fall down, fall down. But then there's casting down and raising up. The whole chapter really is about up and down, up and down, up and down. Because the three won't bow down, they're cast down into the fire and then they're lifted up out of the fire, and then they're even lifted up by the king, Nebuchadnezzar, to a higher position because of what he experienced. And, of course, they're lifted up by God to, you know, we're still talking about them today. So the whole thing is all about up and down. And then, you know, the, the spiritual, the basic spiritual lesson of this chapter is that those of us who will not fall down to the ungodly pressures of the world to dishonor the true God. We are lifted up by God, right? Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. Don't compromise with the world, and he will lift you up. So it is the up and down chapter. Now, the music came from an orchestra of instruments about which scholars of ancient cultures still have incomplete knowledge. Now, in your notes, which you'll get as soon as you get home, um, I, I talk about what, some of the, what they think some of these instruments were. Don't think in terms of modern day. Now, the King James, you know, says dulcimer, but the dulcimer wasn't anything like what you might be picturing, a trapezoid kind of a thing with strings on it. The dulcimer was really um, the Greek word symphony. So it was probably speaking about the percussion um, section of the orchestra. And the, um, the cornet was not like what you would picture, it was a horn of an animal that they would blow. Now, I'm not really sure, I don't know what a sack butt is, although. <laughs> I do know what a sack butt is. 
not quite sure what kind of instrument it was. (laughs) Oh, don't even go there. Um, But what I did find was interesting where it says, and and by the way, the instruments are all listed in the same order four times. Six instruments, four times. And um, every time after they're listed, it then says, and all kinds of music. And that word music comes from... um, the word zamar, Z-A-M-M-A-R, which is actually used elsewhere in the Bible. It's used over in Ezra, and it means singers. So not only was there an orchestra, but apparently the orchestra was accompanied by all kinds of singing. Now, by the Spirit inspiring Daniel to mention just six basic instruments, I think we might have a hint (laughs) that this music coming forth from this Chaldean Philharmonic accompanied by the Babylonian beboppers was not, was the world's music. That's what I think he's hinting at with the six, okay? (laughs) That it was the world's music. I do not think it was music that brought glory and praise to the true God. Well, why would it? You know, they they were pagans, and they're not going to be using godly music. Most probably it was paganistically sensual music. Whenever Satan wants to sell his wares, and his greatest ware is idolatry, he uses music. You know, like everything else good that God has given to man, Satan has taken that which was good, and he has corrupted it. And he has corrupted music, and he has used it widely. He has used it widely to his advantage for the expansion of his own evil world system. And even has he used it to bring the ways and the sounds of the world into the lives of Christians and into the church. Amen? Is a lot of that going on today? Yes, okay, I won't go any further. I won't step on your toes, but I've said it. He's good at that. Well... After giving the particulars of the command to fall prostrate before the image at the first notes that the orchestra played, the herald then included the punishment part of the command. He said, and whoso falleth not down and worshipeth shall the same hour be cast into the midst of a burning fiery furnace. So what was the ultimatum? It was either bow or No, come on, bees. Burn, there you go. (laughs) Bow or burn. Bow or burn. Nebuchadnezzar's methods to secure worship of his subjects were very, very typical of the methods of satanically inspired religions throughout history, even to today. He used three basic methods to secure worship. Number one, he used massive conformity as an appeal to social pressure, right? Does he do that? There is a cult. It's called the cult of conformity. You know, everybody else is doing it. We might as well jump on the bandwagon. I shouldn't do this, but on the way to Bible study this morning, I was listening to Adrian Rogers like I always do. Anybody else listen to him this morning? Anybody? I was laughing out loud in the car. Okay, he was talking about this very same subject, the cult of conformity. And he said, you know, how how one person will step out and try to do something different. All right, let's say that person puts his hat on backwards, you know, so that the 
that the bill is in the back. And then pretty soon everybody else is wearing their bill in the back of the, instead of on the front. And then one kid will decide to wear really, really baggy pants. And everybody kind of looks at him, but pretty soon before you know, everybody's got their, their pants down around their knees, right? And he says, you know, one little girl sticks a safety pin in her nose, and pretty soon everybody's got a safety pin <laughs> in their nose. And he said that um, the scientists decided to, to figure out, like with fish, why do fish, they're so, con you know, they're, they're conform, you know, they always swim in a school. So the scientists wanted to figure out why they always do that. Uh, why there isn't an individual fish not f swimming with the school of fish. So they took one little fish and they did a lobotomy on the fish. <laughs> they removed its brain and they put him back in the water and they watched and sure enough, the, that, that little fish didn't conform with the rest. He went off on his own. But guess what? All the other school of fish started following him. <laughs> and he's the one that had no brain. <laughs> And then, he, and then Adrian Rogers said, just go to any junior high, and you'll see the same thing going on. That is so true, so true. So Nebuchadnezzar used massive conformity as an appeal to social pressure, peer pressure. Then he used music, which we can be sure was not music pleasing to the true God, and that was as an appeal to, to emotions, the emotion, emotional pressure. Because um, music puts people in, in the mood to worship, right? But you want to have the right music to worship the right God, not the wrong music to worship the false God. But then he used murder, murder, the death threat, in his strong, strong appeal to physical pressure. So he used uh, social pressure, emotional pressure, and physical pressure. And it succeeded because the crowd complied. Let's look at verse 7. Therefore, at that time, when all the people heard the sound, notice all, he says all, all the people heard the sound of the cornet, the flute, the harp, sackbut, psaltery, and all kinds of music, all the people, the nations, and the languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar, the king, had set up. So the music, the music was not only for the purpose of getting the people into the right emotional mood to worship the image and subsequently to show their obedience to King Nebuchadnezzar, but it also served as a signal for the massive prostration, for everybody to fall down. It says, therefore, at that time, when all the people heard the sound, all the people fell down. What does that tell us? It tells us that the response of the crowd is very, very typical. Um, it's a typical reaction of the majority when confronted with external pressures. For all but three in that massive crowd, I don't know how many hundreds or thousands of people were out there, but for everyone but three, the surprising announcement made by that herald really made very little difference. Big deal, you know? We'll just go ahead and bow with everyone else. You see, without genuine faith in God and his word as the basis for conviction, people will easily compromise. We see this in politics, don't we? Compromise, compromise. If they don't stand on the truth of the word of God, you know, one week they'll be against abortion, Partial birth abortion, next week they'll compromise. Oh, well, you know, it's accepted in our culture, so I'm for it. So without the word of God as their foundation, and I'd be the same way. 
I'd be just flipping around with go with the flow without knowing that this is God's word. The crowd readily complied to keep their leadership positions and also, of course, to keep their lives. The scripture demonstrates repeatedly, did you know this, that the majority is usually wrong. <laughs> really? I mean, that's why democracy does not work unless that society, that culture is, is founded on God's word. And most of the people, the majority, are Christians. Otherwise, it just doesn't work. Think about the scripture, what it teaches us. The vast majority of the world was wrong when they did not join Noah and get into the ark for safety from judgment. The vast majority of the newly freed Israelites, you know, newly freed from Egypt, were wrong when they worshipped the golden calf at the foot of Mount Sinai, even though that calf was supposed to be a representation of the true God. They were wrong. The majority was wrong. Um, the majority of the 12 Israeli spies were wrong when they basically voted not to enter into the promised land. Too many giants in there. The vast majority of the world is wrong in choosing the broad road that leads to destruction instead of the narrow way of Christ that leads to life eternal. The majority of the world, vast majority of the world in the final Gentile kingdom on earth under the Antichrist is going to take his mark, the mark of the beast, thinking that they are saving their lives by doing so when in fact what are they doing? They're sealing their own eternal doom. So what does the scripture tell us? The majority is usually wrong. Now, we don't know it yet from the text. We know it because we know this story. But there were three men and only three who did not bow to that image at the moment the orchestra began to play. Nor had they bowed to that image by the time the orchestra finished playing. Along with everyone else, those three had heard the command from the herald. Along with everyone else, they had also heard the consequences for disobeying that command. And yet, what? They did not bow. They did not bow. You see, they would obey a higher authority than that of the earthly king over them when... His commands, the earthly king's commands, directly conflicted with the other. Just like Peter and John, when they stood before the Sanhedrin council in Acts chapter 5, and remember they said, we ought to obey God rather than man. And that's how these guys were. The Old Testament, in which they were very well versed, remember they, they obviously had godly parents Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, they, were, they knew their Old Testaments, and um, therefore they knew that the scripture strictly forbids idolatry over and over and over again, not in the old, only in the Old Testament, but the New Testament. You know, keep yourselves from idols. And what is an idol? Is it just a statue? No, it's anything that we put between God and ourselves that can become an idol. It can even become ministry. Your children, anything that comes between you and God is an idol. Um, but these guys knew their Old Testament. They also knew that the first two of the Ten Commandments strictly forbid putting any other God 
before them, worshiping any other god other than Jehovah. And not only that, but it went on to say, not even to make unto them any graven image. Did you know it's wrong to make a statue that is supposed to be Jesus? It's wrong because it limits Jesus in a person's mind and all his characters. It's wrong to put Jesus on a cross because then it's always him suffering. And there's a whole lot more about Jesus than just the suffering part. There's the glory and everything. So it's wrong to make a graven image of God. And do you know it also says that you're not even to bow before any image? Oh, that got me in trouble because I thought, what if I was in their shoes? Well, I would probably have said, uh, you know what? I'm just going to bow before this image. But in my heart, I'm not going to be worshiping that dumb thing. I know it's just an idol made out of wood and gold and human hands put it together. I'll be praying to God, the true God. And I'll just, you know, be in the bowing position because I, I don't like fire and I don't want to burn. But the second commandment says not even to bow because that even gives the appearance of evil, right? Oh, dear. So these guys, I mean, they knew that the absolute basis for their, their action, you know, they, they had such internal conviction about the word of God. They proved that in the diet test, didn't they? That they would not eat the king's meat because it, it went against God's uh, law. So regardless of the external pressure on them to cave or to capitulate or even to compromise, these Hebrews would not fall down with the rest of the crowd and thereby do something explicitly forbidden by God, even though it meant being thrown into that fiery furnace. Oh, horrible, horrible. Now, there were so many people present that apparently, and I'm trying to picture in my mind just hundreds and thousands of people out there on that flat plane, you know, and the king up there at the head table, and, you know, he couldn't see everybody, I guess. I don't know. Uh, but he did not notice that there were three who did not bow down. Maybe they were way in the back somewhere, and he just didn't see them. Maybe he needed glasses. He's about 50 now. Um, or maybe he was bowing. I don't know, but the king did not know that there were three who didn't bow. Um, <clears throat> there were, however, others who did notice that there were three who had not bowed to this image. And it wouldn't surprise me one day in eternity if I find out that they were the ones who noticed were actually responsible for having planted the idea of a mandatory prostration at the threat of death. If they had not been the ones who planted that, that idea about the death threat into the mind of the king, knowing that there were certain Jews who would not comply. You know, he set up the image, and maybe he wanted everybody to come for the dedication ceremony, but they, these are Chaldeans, by the way, the elite of the wise men, maybe they said, well, why don't you make a mandatory worship? And if they don't, you know, throw, give a death threat. Okay, that's a good idea. I wouldn't be surprised because they really had it out for these three Jewish guys. They not only envied them, but they despised them. So let's look at the Chaldean conspiracy, uh, verses 8 to 12. Wherefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans <clears throat> came near and accused the Jews... They spake and said to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. Thou, O king, hast made a decree that every man that shall hear the sound of the cornet, 
<laughs> the flute, the harp, the sackbut, the psaltery, and the dulcimer, and all kinds of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoso falleth not down and worshipeth, that he should be cast into the midst of a burning fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom thou hast set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, and they knew their names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not regarded thee. They, have, they serve not thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. All right, if you recall back to some of our earlier studies, we learned a little bit more about the various categories of the wise men, and we did find out that the Chaldeans, who were originally from the southern province of Babylon, uh, where Nebuchadnezzar's father was from, Nabopolassar, and when he rose to prominence and became king of the Babylonian Empire, he brought these Chaldeans with him, and so they rose to prominence along with Nabopolassar. But when Nabopolassar died and his young son became the king, these guys weren't really fond of Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, he was young. They were more his father's age. And he didn't really trust them too much, did he? He didn't really respect them, and he didn't trust them, and I think that was all very mutual. Then when a teenage Jew named Belteshazzar, who was that? Daniel, that was his uh, Babylonian name and his three friends were proclaimed by the king to uh, be 10 times better than all the wise men in his realm. That was in chapter 1, verse 20, remember, at the examination, um, after they graduated from their three years of training, he said they were 10 times better than all his wise men. Don't you know that that did not make these Chaldeans very happy? Not very happy at all. After all, these men, the Hebrews, had been their students. They were the main teachers of that Babylonian brainwashing academy. So for the king to say that the students were ten times better than the teachers, that didn't make them very happy. And then when Daniel was able to do what they and their gods were unable to do by relaying to the king his dream and then interpreting it, they also could not have been very happy, although they should have been. Why? He's, <laughs> he saved their lives. They should have been happy. But then when the king not only praised the God of the Hebrews, but gave prominent positions in his kingdom to Daniel and his friends, the Chaldeans, again, could not have been very happy. Actually, the king put Daniel over all the wise men. So he was now basically their boss. So they couldn't have been very happy. But then think about this. That had been 20 years earlier, roughly. So a lot of those original Chaldeans were probably no longer around. If they had been Nebuchadnezzar's father's age, um, they probably a lot of them were dead. I think some of them probably did come to know the true God. You know, after Daniel's God was able to reveal the dream, I think some of them got saved, and that's why later on there were wise men that came from the east to, to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. But um, if there still were some of the older guys around, um, the, they were the bitter ones. And by now they would be, have been joined with other young men coming into this particular sect of the Chaldeans. And they resented the fact, very much so, um, that the men... Men were in positions of prominence over them who did not even worship their gods. 
or you know, engage in their occultic practices and all that. Monotheists. So pretending in their hypocrisy to be defending the king, coming to him as though the only concern of their heart is to help him enforce his command. They, they come to him with their little flowery language, you know, to butter him up. Oh, king, live forever. Hope he dies tonight, you know. <laughs> but what's their sole purpose? We're told what their sole purpose was, and it was to accuse the Jews. A malicious prejudice is at the heart of this. It is the spirit of anti-Semitism filling their hearts, which is the prevalent spirit throughout the times of the Gentiles. Remember what the times of the Gentiles is all about? When Israel is under the oppression and the dominion of Gentiles. Now the church age is not included in that. It was Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, and then it will be the revived Roman Empire, which, wow, that will really, the spirit of anti-Semitism will really be in full operation during that last period of the times of the Gentiles. But this is that prevalent spirit, the spirit of anti-Semitism, which, by the way, the church should have absolutely nothing to do with it. Nothing to do with it. If there's anyone on this earth we should love and support it should be the Jewish people and Israel we owe everything to them and God they're the apple of God's eye so don't have anything to do with that in your heart okay please well the word accused in verse 8 is really an interesting word because it means literally to devour and to chew into pieces they wanted to chew these Jewish guys up into pieces and spit them out the connotation is slander and malicious accusation that just wishes to, to devour. And isn't that what the world wants to do today? The, the world wants to devour and chew up Israel and just annihilate her, spit her out, get rid of her. They really despise the three who refused to bow to Nebuchadnezzar's golden image. But it wasn't for the reasons that they gave the king in verse 12. However, before they got to those reasons, the Chaldeans first reminded the king. I don't know if they thought he had Alzheimer's or what. I mean, this had just happened, but they thought they had to remind the king of the details of his decree and the consequences um, that he had established for anyone who disobeyed. It's just fascinating. I think they love the sound of their own voices, but they literally repeat almost verbatim the words of the herald. If you compare verses 10 and 11 to verses 5 and 6, it, it's like they memorized the whole speech. They even included the, the list of every one of those instruments, and they had it in the right order. You know what? You might almost think that they had written that speech <laughs> or set up the herald's teleprompters. I don't know, but they, they knew all about it. Well, in verse 12, the, the Chaldeans finally get down to their accusation. They begin with the announcement that there are certain Jews. It reminds me so much of the Pharisees when they're talking about Jesus. You can almost hear the disdain in their voices. There are certain Jews, and then they identify them. They know these guys. They've had their eye. They've been watching for a long time. Uh, they're Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And then they say, whom the king had set over the affairs of the province of Babylon. Now, when they mentioned 
the positions of authority that the king had given to these men, there they were really giving away the motive behind their accusation, right? You see, the thing that really got their goat, and I ask, where did we get that expression? Somebody find out where we got that expression? <laughs> got their goat. Oh, the thing that really did, you know, just hung them up was that Nebuchadnezzar had put the Jewish captives in high positions, even higher than them. And if you think about the way they identified the men who didn't bow, uh, it's, really, it's really a criticism of the king, isn't it? They're really blaming him. He is the one who had promoted these men. It's really, you know, a defect in their minds. It's a defect in his judgment that he put these men in elevated positions, men who did not worship his gods. But then, after that rather backhanded identification of the three men, the Chaldeans went on to to give three accusations. First of all, they said, these men, O king, have not regarded thee. Knowing very well the tremendous ego of their king, they figured that this was really going to very readily arouse his anger. And the guy does have a temper problem. So they thought this would be it. You know, they don't respect you, king. They, they don't have any regard for you. However, they misjudged their king on this one. They really did. It was a lie. It was a lie. They did respect their king. And Nebuchadnezzar knew it. These men had been serving him faithfully for how long? Two decades. And he knew of their loyalty to him. If you take a sneak peek and look at verse 14, we'll talk about this next week, but when Nebuchadnezzar brings the three before him and questions them, you know, is this true? Are these accusations true that they say about you? He does not include this first accusation. He doesn't, you know, question their loyalty to him. In fact, in spite of his anger, the king knew, he, not only did he know the loyalty of these three men so well, but he also didn't trust the Chaldeans so much that he gives the three a second chance. He did. He, he knew this first accusation wasn't true. However, the second accusation, which was they serve not thy gods, was true. They didn't serve his gods. And the third accusation was also true. They didn't worship the golden image which he had set up. You see, the accusations were calculated to arouse Nebuchadnezzar's anger and to bring about the demise of these three men, very possibly with the hope that they themselves would then maybe be promoted for being the tattletales on them. You know, maybe they'd get a position, maybe they'd even be put in those three guys' position. But they wanted to get rid of them. They probably wanted to get rid of Daniel even more, but... He, he was pretty protected by the king, and he wasn't even there. So at least they could get these three guys. That's their whole hope. But what is so absolutely amazing, and we're going to be discussing this in the lessons to follow, is that these Jewish men, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, they knew ahead of time 
the, the price that they would pay for their disobedience to the king's command. They knew ahead of time. They had heard the threat. And yet, what? They were willing to pay that price. They counted the cost, and they were willing to pay it. That is amazing. They had such deeply seated inner convictions that were based on the word of God and his commandments that they literally stood tall. They literally stood on their feet while everyone else around them was flat on their face. You see, they were standing on a rock, right? Everybody else was on the sands of Babylon, so they were down. These guys were up. They refused to even think of compromising in order to save their lives by way of an excruciating death. Can you imagine? I had one lady yesterday came to me after the Bible study and she said her brother actually was involved in the explosion of a, of a fiery furnace. He was in there when it exploded and they pulled him out by his feet and just took forever and he lived but took forever to recover from that. And the pain, she said, oh, what he went through was just, I don't know if any of you have ever been burned, but I, I have trouble if I just burn myself on a finger or something. But to be thrown into a fiery furnace, what would our response have been? I don't know, like I said, I think I would be so tempted to try to compromise. Think of what they could, they could have said, if we're going to reach these pagan people from all over the kingdom, we need to look like we're part of them, don't we? You know, we need to, to not stand out as being so different. They, they certainly won't be interested in learning about our God if we look like we're we think we're better than them by not bowing down. Or, you know, like I said before, what's the big deal about just bowing? I won't really be worshiping the God in my heart. Or burning in a fiery furnace, you know, that does tend to be fatal. Does tend to be fatal. So how can we use our positions of prominence in a pagan society if we're not around anymore? You know, how can God use us as salt and light if we're just gone? We won't be any use to him if we're dead. Just think of all the compromises. Yet these three were willing to be thrown in that. That is just, it boggles my mind. And yet they're examples to us, and we're living in times like that where we might be tempted to compromise. I mean, the world is trying to shut us up more and more, aren't they? Let's stand on our feet tall, even if the rest of the world is bowed down flat on their faces, Okay. Okay, let's commit in our hearts. Stand true on the word of God. Let's pray. Father, help us to set aside any and every idol in our hearts, which is anything we put before you. May we always, always seek first you and your kingdom and your righteousness. Idolatry, we know, is the most basic issue that concerns you. And we know this because it is the subject of your first two commandments and because your word repeatedly forbids it. But these three Hebrew young men, they understood how completely unacceptable idolatry is to you. And therefore, they would not bow down, even though it meant their death. Death in the worst of ways. Help us, Father. Truly help us to have that kind of commitment. We have all the resources that they had, and we even have more than they had to be able to stand true. So help us not to compromise on our stand for you and for your word and for your glorious son who saved us. It's in his name we pray. Amen. God bless you.